Ireland. In 1840, potato plants in Holland and in France and many parts of Europe had begun to blacken and wither beneath the stems, and potatoes were rotting literally in the ground. Well, why does that matter? Well, the Irish feed themselves off of potatoes. That's how they lived. That was their livelihood. So when they heard that a potato famine was racing across Europe, there was great fear. Eventually, the dreaded famine hit Ireland, and one author wrote, In 1845, an Irish farmer in his field pushed his hand into the ground to check on his potatoes, and his fingers found only soft, rotten mush. He desperately dug up the entire field only to find all of his potatoes had rotten away in the ground, end quote. For several years, thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people starved to death. Travelers through Ireland found dead men and women in their homes, fallen beside the road, even lying in fields. By 1850, the famine was over, but over a million people had died in Ireland. Unless you're a farmer, and there's not that many farmers right here in Providence, are there? (laughs) You haven't been through a five-year famine where you see thousands upon thousands of people die. But if you're here this morning, you've been through difficult things. And many of you today are probably going through something very difficult right now. Unemployment. Maybe you were fired from your job. Maybe you're facing some kind of health illness. Maybe you're struggling in a relationship or maybe in your marriage. Whatever it is, whatever difficulty you're facing, God has good news for you today. Because whatever the difficulty is, whatever the suffering is, he can help us through it. Chronic illness or terminal illness, difficulties in parenting, bad marriage, unemployment, struggles at work, depression, having a hard time making ends meet. How do we make it through difficult seasons? Well, our fear of God makes a difference. Who you fear in this world can change the nature of how we live. Do we fear God and rely on Him? Or are you fighting through this world trying to survive on your own strength? Well, this morning I want to listen to and read together the author of 1 Kings... And consider how the fear of the Lord matters as we fight for survival through difficult seasons. We want to look at 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 1 to 19. And what we're going to find is that in a difficult season, the fear of the Lord helps us. And here's the outline. If you're a note taker, at CHBC we have neurotic note takers. They're all queued up for the outline. So here it is if you like to take notes. Number one, in a difficult season we fear the Lord Fear of the Lord helps us to be courageous. Number one, be courageous. Number two, obey. And number three, fight self-reliance. So in a difficult season, the fear of the Lord helps us to, number one, be courageous. Number two, obey. And number three, fight self-reliance. And my prayer for you is that as you face difficulties in this fallen world, you'll learn to fear the Lord God Almighty and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so we fight for survival in this fallen world, not by ourselves, but with the one who has redeemed us and sent His Son for us. So before we read chapter 18, as I work through that chapter with you again, I want you to flip over to chapter 16. 
Because we have to set up a little bit of context here because we're jumping in the middle of a book. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 16, we're going to look starting around verse 29. You'll see Ahab becomes king over Israel and he does what is often condemned of kings. He married a foreign wife. Now, do you know why that was an issue in their day? It's not because of racial issues, not because of ethnicity or skin color. Foreign wives introduce foreign gods. That's why it was a problem. And what they often did is they persuaded their husbands to turn away from the one true God and instead to worship false gods. So, that, so was the case with Ahab. Now let's read chapter 16. Look with me at verse 31. Then, as if following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow and worship to him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal and he built, he, he, that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab's worship of false gods angered the Lord God Almighty. And as the king and queen go, so also does the entire country. Israel begins to then follow those false gods just like the king and the queen did. What we find is that God is going to do everything he can to win back the hearts of his own people. And to do that, the Lord begins by sending Elijah the prophet. Look at chapter 17, the very first verse. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead, uh, from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Now, why a famine? The prophet Elijah comes and pronounces this famine on behalf of God. But why, why does that matter for this storyline? Well, it's important to understand that rain in an agricultural society is necessary for your survival. You, you, you can't actually live unless there is rain so that the crops are produced so that you can feed off of those crops. There is no grocery store down the street. This is your existence. And it's important also to understand that Baal is the god of rain. So what better way to show who really is in charge than to take away the rain? So with that background in mind, look, look over at chapter 18, which if you if haven't opened your Bible yet, it's on page 309 in your pew Bible. Point number one, the fear of the Lord helps us to be courageous. Let me read verses 1 to 6 again. After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go... And present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called for Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord and took a hundred prophets and hid him and hid them, fifty of them to a cave, and provided them with food and water. When Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets, 
Ahab said to Obadiah, Go throughout the land to every spring and to every wadi. Perhaps we will find grass so we can keep the horses and the mules alive and not have to destroy any cattle. They divided the land between them in order to cover it. Ahab went on one way by himself and Obadiah went the other way by himself. Okay, after three long years of famine, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah the prophet who has been living in the land north of Israel called Sidon. God commands Elijah, you see there in verse 1, to return to Israel and go see Ahab for some unspecified purpose. And he prom- the promised offer is that when Elijah does this, God will again send rain to the land. The news that God would bring rain was obviously welcome news. For look at verse 2, he tells us the famine was very severe in Samaria. And then there in verse 3, we're introduced to the character of Obadiah. This is not Obadiah, the minor prophet. Rather, this is a different character. This is Obadiah in charge of Ahab's household. You can think of Obadiah of Ahab's chief of staff. Uh, He's the right-hand man to the king who handles all of his personal affairs. He, He was in charge of running the house and running the staff. Now, for those of you, I might date myself a little bit, watching Downton Abbey. You know, this is Mr. Carson and Miss Hughes running the whole household on behalf of the family. Or you can think of Joseph, who was put in charge of Pharaoh's household. Now, I don't know if any of you work in the government. Interestingly, Obadiah is an example for you. He's someone who fears God, serving in the government, trying to faithfully follow the Lord while serving someone who he doesn't agree with in a number of things. And an awkward and difficult position for him to be in. But he's, in that sense, working, in fact, as a government official, or some would call him a secular servant. Now, as the famine continued to get severe, there was a threat of livestock dying. In agricultural society, your livestock mattered. Your cows, your horses, your chickens, your cattle, your sheep, your goats. And it's extremely important for your survival. Obadiah was so important to the king that the king asked Obadiah to help him personally keep the animals alive. So look down there, verse 5. King Ahab has a plan. He wants to go throughout the land of Israel looking for water and grass to save the animals. And then you see there in verse 6, they divided up the land and they headed in different directions. Now, in in some of your Bibles, you'll notice halfway through verse 3, in in, in the ESV, it has parenthetical comments. Now, in the handy-dandy Holman, which CSB I'm not used to uh, here, it's not not parenthetical, but there's an emphasis there on Obadiah fearing the Lord greatly. Or, as some translations put it, he's a devout believer of the Lord. Do you fear God? Do you know what that even means? When we think of fear, the first thing we think about is like fear of heights. Or, you know, fear of creepy crawly things like spiders. When, when the Bible mentions fear of God, that's not what it's talking about. When it talks about fear of God, it's talking about honoring, revering. An awe of God because he is the king of the universe. He's the Lord Almighty. And he is to be feared in that way. We're, we're to have great reverence and awe for him. 
So when you hear that term, fear of the Lord, that's what it means. It means we cower in the presence of the one who made all things and who is the redeemer of the entire universe. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And if you fear the Lord greatly, it should lead you to do great things on his behalf. You know, that's what Obadiah did. At great risk to his own life, he courageously hid a hundred prophets of the Lord in caves. He fed them bread and water in order to preserve their life and save them from genocide of the queen who loved Baal and deliberately was eliminating her opposition to her own God. So if you love the Lord greatly, it should lead you to make courageous choices in your life. Now, courage doesn't just simply come as some noble characteristic because you're a courageous person. It's not just some thing about you. No, in fact, courage is a reflection that you fear God. It's a, it's a reflection that you have awe for him. And if you do have that kind of awe for him, it should change the way you live. Now, you know, in the summer times, my kids love the pool. It's often many days they're begging their mother to take them to the pool. And so we do. We go to Chevrolet, Maryland to a pool. And, and you can picture one day off as I'm with them. On, on, in, in the pool, and my youngest son at that point, as, as a three or four-year-old, the scene of, of, of a kid at the edge of the pool, not wanting to jump in, and there I am as dad holding my arms out, saying, come on, jump, jump into my arms, I'll catch you, come on now. And what will cause him to leap into my arms? Is it because he's a fantastic swimmer? You know, Olympic quality at age three. He's, he's ready to jump in and do laps around the pool. No, it's not that. No, is, is it because he actually honors and reveres and actually respects me as his dad? Maybe at three, he's not really thinking about those concepts, is he? Is it because he trusts me as his father? He, he, he knows that I'm a safe place for him. Is it because he looks to me as his loving father? Yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's like as a, as a little kid taking a risk because my kid's not a risk taker. <laughs> He's not going to leap naturally. But when he looks to me and he says, I can leap into his arms, that, that, that's when he's going to take a jump. If, if, if his love and trust and reverence and respect and trust, especially of me as a loving father, if, if he really looks to me like that, he'll leap off of the edge, won't he? Well, same thing for us. If you really honor and revere God, if you trust him for who he is, you'll take a risk. You'll, you'll take the jump off the edge of the pool. You'd be willing to do things that, you know, in your own strength, you wouldn't be willing to do. If you fear God greatly, no matter what the difficulties are, it'll lead you to do courageous things, not because you're valiant, but on his behalf. If, if you fear God, if God is greater than all of the pressures of this life, then you're willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel. Now, for some of you here today, you think, I'm not like that at all. 
I'm just not willing to take any risks. Well, it, not, it, it, it may be that you're just not very, very willing to do that because of your personality. But that's not what I'm talking about in terms of personality. If we fear God because we're Christians, then we're willing to do things on his behalf. And if you think, well, I, I know who God is, but I'm not willing to take risks for him, that says something about where you're at spiritually. And so you, you need to think today about your relationship with the Lord and what it would mean to make him, fear of him, the centerpiece of your life and to see how that might change things. And so if you find yourself on the fringe, maybe you've been attending, but you haven't been willing, wanting to put yourself in, you just haven't been willing to like even commit yourself to really following the Lord, what better day than today? To say, I am going to make my fear of the Lord the centerpiece of my life and begin to change the way I've been living. I'm not just going to come anymore. I'm going to put myself in this God and see what you're going to change. Now, for some of you here, you really do trust the Lord and you need to begin to think about, well, what does it mean for the fear of God to change how I live? So if I fear God, then let's fill in the blank. Maybe there's a hard conversation you need to have that you've been avoiding. Maybe there's something that you should do that you haven't been willing to do. Or maybe there's something you shouldn't do that you should actually hold back from. Well, whatever it is, whatever it is, we need to be willing to take risks if we really do follow God. For many of us, it's evangelism. We feel like if we go tell someone else that we're a Christian in a culture that is so anti-Christian, we'll look like fools. And yet in our evangelism, if we really fear God more than the people around us, we'll be willing to speak up on his behalf. And today in 2023, in a, a culture that's growing more and more antithetical to Christianity, it's going to take more fear of the Lord to be a Christian in this culture. Because just every month, every year that passes more of the culture we're in here in the United States becomes more and more antithetical to people who trust God fundamentally. And so it's going to require more of you in terms of not just your own valiant strength, but trusting that fearing God will let you be bold in a culture that hates Christians. And it's not going to get better. Unfortunately, it looks like it's just going to get worse. So fear God greatly, then the pressures you face in this world will not matter nearly as much as honoring God with our lives and trusting him more than anybody else. Well, how does the fear of the Lord help me in a difficult season? Obadiah feared God greatly, and that led him to be courageous and do courageous things for God. But we should ask again, how does the fear of the Lord help me in a difficult season? Point number two, it helps me to obey even when things seem unjust. And that's verses 7 to 16. Look at those verses with me again. When Obadiah was walking along the road, Elijah suddenly met him. When Obadiah recognized him, he fell face down and he said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? It is I, he replied. Go tell the lord Elijah's here. But Obadiah said, what sin have I committed that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent someone to search for you. 
When they said, he's not here, he made that kingdom or nation swear they had not found you. Now you say, go tell your Lord, Elijah's here. But when I leave you, the spirit of the Lord may carry you off to some place. I don't know. Then when I go report to Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Wasn't it reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets? I hid a hundred of the prophets of the Lord, 50 men to a cave, and I provided them with food and water. Now you say, go tell your Lord, Elijah's here. He will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of armies lives, in whose presence I stand, today I will present myself to Ahab. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. Then Ahab went to meet Elijah. All right, so... Uh, Verse 7, Obadiah was on his way to find water and grass for the animals when he suddenly runs into the prophet Elijah. And think about it. Elijah makes a declaration as a prophet of God about the famine in chapter 17, verse 1. And then he's out of here. He's gone for three long years. And suddenly he appears out of nowhere. So Obadiah is surprised. He's surprised at his sudden appearance. Enough so, he falls to the ground and he says to Elijah, Is it you, Elijah? Because he's shocked after three years, the prophet's been gone, and now suddenly he's here. Verse 8, look there. Elijah responds, It is I. Go tell Ahab that I'm back. Go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here. Now, do you know who Elijah is? When you read the entire chapter, you see he's this super confident man in regards to the last two verses, 7 and 8. He suddenly saunters onto the stage and he says, Aha, I'm back after three years. Did you miss me? Well, why don't you go fetch Ahab and let me have a conversation with him? Now flip back to chapter 17 for just a moment. Elijah was a prophet of the Lord, which means he was appointed by God to speak on behalf of God to the Israelites and to also their king. And he lived this remarkable life. Chapter 17 is a quick overview of some things he did before we get to chapter 18. Look there, verses 1 to 7. After he declares the famine, he goes into a ravine at God's command. And the Lord uses ravens to feed him. You know, there is no special hubbub or Amazon, like, delivery to you. This is ravens God is sending to give your your evening meal. Verses 8 to 16. He travels to Sidon, north of Israel, and meets a widow who is about to cook her last meal for herself and her son. And Elijah performs the first miracle by promising her a jar of flour and a jug of oil would not run out Until the rain returns. And what he says comes to pass. And then look there, the the last part of there, verses 17 to 24. The widow's son dies, and Elijah prays to the Lord, and the boy comes back to life. You know what this is? It's the first resurrection in the Bible. 
It's the first time somebody comes back to life because the, a man of God raises them from the dead. Elijah lived this extraordinary life as a prophet on behalf of God. But it's not because he was some super confident superhero. No. He was a man of God declaring things to God's people on God's behalf. This is who we're dealing with here. Now, now turn back to chapter 18. Elijah has returned to Israel, and what we see in there in verse 9, Obadiah gets frustrated with Elijah because uh, what he felt like was a ridiculous plan that Elijah had suggested. Look at what he says. He says, how have I sinned? Or, in other words, what have I done wrong? If Obadiah goes to tell Ahab that Elijah was back, Ahab would kill Obadiah. And why is that? Consider what was happening when Elijah had been gone for three years during the famine. Verse 10, Ahab so desperately wanted to find Elijah, he went to every kingdom and nation. And when, he, when they said he's not here, he made them even swear he wasn't here. It wasn't good enough just to take their word, but to make them swear on that, to swear an oath. Look there, verse 12. Because Elijah had been gone so long, Obadiah was concerned. If we went to Ahab about Elijah, the Spirit of the Lord would carry him away again. So Ahab would get mad at Obadiah, and what was he scared? Ahab would kill him. That's what his fear was. Obadiah had been hiding the prophets, and now it seemed to him unjust for him, who hadn't sinned against Elijah, to have to die on Elijah's behalf. I just want you to notice the logic of the text. Look in the text for a second with me. This is Obadiah's argument with Elijah. Verse 9, what have I done? How have I sinned against you? Look there, verse 10, Ahab has been searching for you for three long years. Then verse 12, if I tell Ahab, you'll disappear again and leave me hanging, buddy. And verse 12, in, in the CSB, the word but, DSV is although. That's the hinge right there. That's key. Because then, look, Obadiah then lays out what he's done for the Lord. Verse 12, I've feared the Lord since my youth. Verse 13, don't you know that I've been faithfully hiding the prophets of the Lord? Elijah's plan sounded ridiculous to Obadiah. Obadiah was disillusioned at Elijah's brilliant plan to send him waltzing in to Ahab's court without Elijah present with him to die a pointless death. He felt it was unjust for him to have to die this kind of death considering all the things he'd been doing on God's behalf. Now, I wonder if you've ever felt this same kind of juxtapositioning. You know what I mean by that? On the one hand, Lord, look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've been doing to serve you. Look at how faithful I've been. On the other hand, this is so unfair. I, I don't like your plan for my life. Let me just give you some examples. You've tried to be a good spouse, and yet your marriage is not going well. Or you've tried to parent faithfully, and yet your kids don't show you any respect. In fact, they give you attitude and they disobey. 
Or you pour it into your job, you work very hard, and yet someone stabs you in the back, or people gossip about you, or your boss is really hard on you. Or you read your Bible, you come to church, you obey God, and yet your family or friends mock you for your faith. Or again, you read your Bible, you come to church, uh, you ask God for things because you've been faithful, and yet you face sickness or maybe you can get a bad car accident. You know, I wonder if you've ever looked at God and you say, hey, look, God, I'm doing my best down here. I, I, I am trying. I've been going to church. I've been reading my Bible. I've been going to small group. I've been trying to help others. I'm trying to be faithful. Fill in the blank. What are you doing, God? Why do I have to face these things? I get sick. I get into an accident. My kids rebel. My coworkers gossip. My, my, my parents or my friends mock me. Lord, this seems so unfair. Why, why, why are you doing this to me? I'm one of the good guys, don't you see? I, I've been faithfully serving you. I've been doing what you ask. And yet, why do you do this to me? Why do I have to face these things? God, what are you doing? Sometimes you try so hard to do the right thing as a Christian. And yet you face hard circumstances and you wonder, God, what's going on? Why do I have to live like this? Why do I have to face things like this? And you become disillusioned, just like Obadiah, and feel like, I'm I'm trying to be faithful, God, but why do I have to go through these hard things? Verse 15, Elijah assures Obadiah that he is surely going to show himself to Ahab that very day. And remarkably, look at verse 16. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. Now, when I read that many years ago for the first time, I went, what? Wait a second. He was just complaining about being potentially killed. And the very next few verses, it just lays out for us. He he obeyed. He went. He did it. He went and talked to Ahab. The assurance of Elijah probably helped him some. But you know what I think is more significant in my mind? You know what I think made the difference? The text tells us that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. What helped him to face what seemed like an unjust circumstance? What helped him to step in when he felt like he felt it was so unfair? I think he his fear of God led him to obey the word of the Lord despite the hard circumstances. In the end, Obadiah's fear of the Lord won out over his frustrations about Elijah's plan. He did go face the king with this news of Elijah's return, even though he was convinced that Elijah would not show up and Ahab would potentially kill him. In the end, Obadiah didn't let his disillusionment with Elijah's plan get the best of him. No, rather, he obeyed the word of the Lord and did what God asked of him. 
Now, what should you do if you feel like God is being unfair to you? What should you do if you're facing a hard circumstance and you've been disillusioned at moments and maybe even seasons at what God is doing? If you're disillusioned because of hard circumstances in your life, God asks you to trust him and to remain faithful and to obey no matter what it is that you're facing. So are you in a difficult marriage right now and you're really struggling? Well, I'm really glad you're here this morning. Try and keep in mind what God is asking you to do to be a faithful spouse and and keep your mind on that. Be faithful to whatever the Lord asks you within your marriage. Love and serve your spouse and do what the Lord asks you to do. Maybe you're having a hard time with your kids. Maybe one of your kids are rebelling right now. Well, as a parent, don't, don't give up. Don't give up to despair. Rather, faithfully parent for as many days as the Lord would give you with that child. Or maybe you're having a hard time at work. Maybe somebody has mocked you or stabbed you in the back. Well, if you know clearly what you're supposed to do, be faithful to your job and let your witness as a Christian and your work as a Christian allow you to show others that you're going to trust the Lord more than any kind of difficult thing going on in your office. And no matter what it is, the list can go on and on and on of the hard things that we face. Trust the Lord. Be faithful in what he's asked you to do. Don't let the disillusionment take over and distract you from what God is asking you to do. Difficult seasons are God-given opportunities to grow in our trust of the Lord and remain faithful no matter what it is he's calling you to do. Now we see that in difficult seasons, if we fear God, number one, we're to be courageous. And number two, we're to obey even if we're disillusioned. But number three, it also helps us to fight self-reliance. And that's that last few verses, verses 17 to 19. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, the one ruining Israel? He replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab, upon hearing the news about Elijah's arrival, immediately heads out to find him. The man Ahab had been searching for all over the world has now arrived. And look there in verse 18, look at what he says to him. Is it you... The one ruining Israel. Literally, this could be translated. Is it you, the one who has brought a curse on Israel? Ahab had lived three long years in the famine, and he clearly blamed Elijah for these troubles. Because it was Elijah who pronounced the famine at the beginning of chapter 17. And yet, what does Elijah do? He doesn't put up with it. He sees that Ahab's blaming him, but he turns it right back around on the king. Look there at verse 18. I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because 
You have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, remember the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me to keep my commands. Now, according to Elijah, Ahab was at fault for the famine because the king, it is the king that led the nation to follow false gods. Ahab was trying, trying to blame Elijah, but Elijah knew who was the real person who ruined this entire country. Now, what we see is an earthly battle between a prophet and a king. But on a cosmic level, it is much more than just that. It's not ultimately between the two of them. What is this about? What is the the point of the story? It's to show who's really in charge. Who is really in control here? Is it to show that who is really in control? Well, it's to show who's really in control of life and death and food and starvation. It's the Lord God Almighty who is. It's the one who sent Jesus to rescue us. It's the one who sent this prophet to warn the evil king. God is in charge. He's sovereign over this entire universe. He he might use these two actors in this story to show us that, but it's not about them. It's about the fact that God is sovereign over everything. And what does he use the famine for? To show He's in charge. What does he use the prophet for? To show that he's in charge. And what does he use when the rain comes back? To show that he's in charge of everything. And so maybe God today is helping you to begin to see those things that I've been disillusioned by or those things that I've been relying myself by. I need to begin to really lean in on him and come to understand That God is really sovereign over every inch of my life. There's not one inch of my life that's beyond his control. And when I begin to trust that, things can really change. Now, hard circumstances and human suffering is often used by the Lord to reveal our hearts and show who we really trust and worship. What What we learn about Ahab's life is that he didn't want to repent He didn't fear the Lord. Unlike Obadiah, who feared God greatly and so was willing to take great risks for God, Ahab wanted to persevere by what? By his own strength. You know, remember verses 5 and 6, what did he do? He set out to save the animals by scouring the land for food and water. What would have served him much better is to forget about the animals and repent and turn back to God. All of Israel knew that Baal was dead. You know why? Because there was no rain for three years. They knew the God of rain was useless. Why couldn't the king understand this? 
Why couldn't the king see that his plan was futile? No, the king continued to fight for survival by his own strength. So where is God asking you to stop relying on yourself to repent and turn back to him? The gospel is the good news that we're all foolish. We're all foolish and self-reliant. And that what we need to do is trust that he sent Jesus because we can't make it on our own. We can't just do this life on our own. But Christ came and he died on a cross for sinners like you and me so that we don't have to do it on our own. In our foolishness, we think we can. And yet God says, no, you can't. Stop doing that. Trust me. Just trust me. I got a better plan and I'm in charge of everything. You know how he proved that? 2,000 years ago, he sent his son to say, I'm going to send my only son for you. And I'm going to show you that Jesus, my son, not only will he die on the cross for you, but if you're willing to stop being so stubborn and finally give my, your life to me, then everything, and I, I mean everything, can change. One of my favorite verses, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all, that those who lived should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. My goodness, that's the best news I can give you today. You don't have to live for yourself anymore. You just don't have to rely on yourself anymore. And if you've been on that hamster wheel, I mean, I'm in Washington, D.C. There are so many people on hamster wheels thinking they came to the capital to conquer the world and the nation. And in, in, in a few months, let alone a few years, they're in my office realizing their ideal plans were nothing. Governments come and go, but they come to realize who finally is in charge. It's the God of the universe. So stop relying on yourself. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, what a great place to be on a Sunday morning. Thank you for coming. I, I love that you're here gathered with us. Now, you, you have plans in your life, and you are actually probably very self-reliant. You figured out how to get through this world on your own. But can I say to you, it's foolish to think that you can survive on your own. If you rely on your own strength to try and get through this life, you're going to run into really hard things, and you come to realize you can't do this by yourself. So what better day than to realize that living life on your own, by your own strength, by your own interpretation of this world, by your own desires, is not a good way to live life. So here's an opportunity today for you to begin to rethink, well, maybe does God have something for me? Don't try and survive on your own. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, I would love to meet you before you leave today. I'd love for you to turn to somebody around you because the room's full of Christians. And just say, okay, I don't want to do this on my own anymore. Just tell me how. And then, brothers and sisters, same applies to you. In, in what ways have you built your life by your own efforts rather than turning to God? In what ways have you relied on yourself in trying to get through things rather than saying, Lord, I need your help?
I, I, I'm a classic type A person. You know, I'm also first child, oldest kid. I, for years, just tried to do it by my own strength. I, I, and, and every grade, I had my plan for the year. <laughs> I graduate college. I had my plan for my life. And you know what did God do in 1985? He upended my whole life plan. He completely destroyed everything in my path. And basically said, it's now you and me. And you get to choose. And after years of me trying to do it my own way, I finally gave in. So every morning, I still have to fight this. There's not a single day as a Christian. It's not like victory came in 1995 and I'm good ever since. Every morning, I have to fight my own sinful flesh. Wakes up desiring my plans, my efforts, and my desires. And you know what I need to do? I need to say first thing in the day, Lord, I need help. I, I can't do this on my own. I just can't survive on my own. I, I need somebody who's got strength that goes beyond my strength to actually make it through this life. Because there's a lot of terrible things in this life. And so I have to beg God for help every day because my orientation is, all right, I'm going to conquer the day. <laughs> I, I, I got my strength. I got my plan. I'm ready to go. That's just a horrible way to face the day. Instead, I need to be able to say, God, I need you. I need somebody to help me because I'm going to mess up this day. And unless you help me, I'm not going to make it. What about you? How self-reliant have you been? Today's the day where you can repent and say, God, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. I've, I've got to begin to turn to you and beg for your help so that things can change. Fighting self-reliance and learning daily to depend on Jesus can change your life. Now, kids and teens, I'm really glad you're here. You've been really patient with me going on and on and on. Here's one thing I'd like you to do at lunch today with your parents. I want you to ask them how they fight self-reliance and how they depend on Jesus. I'm going to make you put them on the spot. I'm going to get you to get them to answer for themselves how they trust in Christ every day and how they've fought through this life, trusting in him. So ask them that today, over lunch today, and see what kind of conversation that leads you to with your parents. Well, we should conclude. You know, in the end, what we find is a contrast between two men. Obadiah, on the one hand, a man who feared the Lord greatly and because of his relationship with the Lord, did courageous things, obeyed God... And on the other hand, King Ahab, who abandoned God for Baal, who turned to false gods, and who relied on his own strength. Who are you? Which one are you? One of the privileges of my job as I come alongside people is I see a lot of people in suffering. And what you come to find is suffering peels the layers of a person's life all the superficial parts of their life, and it real, reveals under, underneath, what am I really worshiping? What am I really trusting in? 
Do you fear God more than anything else? Do you trust that Jesus is enough for you? If you do, it will show up in those hard seasons. And you'll be able to see who you're really trusting in. Would you pray with me? God, we don't want to fight by our own strength. Lord, we don't want to be disobedient. Lord, we don't want to cower in in fear. Rather, we want to fear you. We want the fear of you to orient our life. We want the truth of Christ dying for us to change everything. So let today be the day where that begins. We pray it in your son's name. Amen.